This is CliffCentral.com. Here's a powerful thing. I mean, it's got a lot of firepower. If you can figure out a way to wrestle that fear, to push you from behind rather than stand in front of you, that's very powerful. Multiplying leadership, moving society, the millennial way. You don't want to end up going after goals and dreams and neglect yourself. Welcome to the Youth Leadership Platform with your host, Bongani Tao. Take control. Take control of your city. This is the instrument of your liberation. See, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Youth Leadership Platform and you are listening to your host with the most, Bongani Tao. It's at Simply Bongani across all social media platforms and if you've been following a lot of the conversations that uh, we've been having you will notice that um, we, we spent a lot of time focusing on entrepreneurship, um, starting businesses, running successful businesses, and what it takes um, to grow. We've had uh, the CEO of Lulaway. We've had Tembi, who went from Soweto to trading um, at Wall Street. Um, all those conversations are very significant. And if you can go back to some of the podcasts and Listen back on them. There's a lot of valuable insights um, that you can find. I think last week or the last episode, we had One Young World, who are a group of um, young individuals doing amazing things um, in South Africa, who had just been chosen for uh, a program called One, uh, One Young World, which was hosted in, in the Netherlands. To so find out more about um, their journey, what happened there, some of the opportunities as well that can come from there. Um, Listen to the episode um, before this one. Um, but today we, we have um, a, a very exciting guest uh, who's going to help us decode what is ethical leadership. And as you would know, the Youth Leadership Platform is about um, moving society and, and multiplying authentic um, leadership, the millennial way. Um, to not waste any further time, she is a postdoctoral research fellow um, at the Faculty of Humanities at the University of um, Pretoria, um, which is in conjunction with the Mellon Foundation um, Public Intellectual Project. She's committed to ethical leadership and social justice and the cultivation of knowledge with a sense of the ethical and the pursuit of wisdom. She's also committed to environmental and animal welfare and justice. Without any further ado, let us welcome Dr. Um, Solomon. Welcome to the Youth Leadership Platform, Doc. Thank you very much, Bongani, and please call me Croatia. Oh, <laughs> you don't you like the title that? much? Yeah, no. You know, it's part of the decolonial understanding also that we need to shift away from this uh, concept of titles and, and in, you know, affirming certain things or bestowing certain privileges onto individuals. Yeah, it's for writing purposes. It's fine when you do the, the little bit and you get the acknowledgement. It's fine. Yes. But after that, when we chat on a one-to-one basis, I'm Koresha, you Bongani. <laughs> 
<laughs> ah, would you listen to that? Not we haven't even started the conversation, and we're already um, receiving a lot of pearls of wisdom. So, um, uh, Croatia, kindly um, take us through a journey of where you grew up and what it was like um, being a young, ambitious uh, young woman. So I'm, first let's get the facts straight, I'm not so young. I grew up in Potterstrom at the height of apartheid in many ways. And as you know, Potterstrom is one of those towns which was considered like very conservative. Yes. It was hugely challenging to be in that space. But also I think at the same time, it helped me to build character and a sense of resilience and resistance mm-hmm. because you grow up in that space and you start to recognize uh, a lot of injustices. And my father was a trader and he had, you know, people would come on a regular basis, uh, resistance fighters, etc., would come and chat with him, come and take groceries from him when people were in need, they wanted to sleep there. So we learned a lot from those experiences. Um, at a, a later age, I moved to Durban, to UKZN. Yes. Uh, where I finished my schooling, my high school as well. And the amazing thing is that there I went to a private school. Um, I was taken in, we were, I think, a handful, about five black students in a majority white private school. Interesting. Yeah, so that was another good experience because the kind of racism that you experienced in Durban which was considered more English-speaking, was different to the kind that you felt in Gauteng, hmm. where it was more Afrikaans-speaking. So these were wonderful experiences in a way, like I said. You know, they shaped, they shaped my personality, but also in, in many ways helped me to learn to stand up as an individual. The most, I think, striking aspect of all of this was to recognize that silence is consent. Hmm. And so when you see an injustice, you never remain silent, nor claim this whole notion of neutrality or objectivity because it simply endorses the oppressor. Hmm. Well, what, are, what are some key lessons you learned from your parents at, at this point in time, at this phase of your life growing up? Well, for, well, firstly, in, you know, from my mother's point of view, she was a very empathetic person. Mm-hmm. And she was really troubled by the extent of poverty in South Africa. So she always told us, don't look up, look at the people below you and see what you can do. Hmm. And you should always be able to share. It could never be that you are not able to share. Hmm. And, and part of that mentality was what she instilled in us on always recognizing that you needed to do something. Hmm. And, and you can only do that if you keep looking at those below you. Because if you keep looking at those above you, then you're always striving to get that which is not, you know, meant for you, but also it makes you a very selfish, greedy, and egoistical kind of a person. But you look at those below you and you recognize that, hey, you know what, there are people in more difficult than me. There are people who need. I can do something. I can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you automatically start to reach out. But it's important also you know, to mingle with the general population, share their thoughts, share their feelings. But, you know, what was striking for me, Bongani, was the fact that my mother always, always endorsed kindness. She said in Mm. the end, all that matters is kindness. You know, Mm. if you have nothing, at least be kind. Yes, because you you don't have to spend anything to be kind. No, you don't. And my father was an avid, avid... Uh, what can I say, reader, although he never, he, he couldn't finish school because uh, at that time with the group areas, uh, 
and with uh, forceful uh, removals, um, they were moved also from their you know, a place of residence and, and that which was a permanent home for them right in the center of Potter's Room and moved into the Indian location. And, then, and they struggled and he had to leave school, etc. And he, you know, he loved, he listened to the radio, he read newspapers. He was, mashallah, he was so intelligent. He was so articulate, but he was so well-versed with what was happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And he always told us, he said, take an interest, pay attention, know what is happening. Don't live like, you know, as in an individual in an island or in a cocoon. He says, because we are social beings. Yes. And by being social beings, we have to exist around and with people. Yes. But the best way of existing is to know the condition. And when you know the condition and you're always looking down to think what difference can I make, you become a better human being. So context is important to our existence. Hmm. Interesting. Now, as, 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 as a young woman in, in that situation, um, observing all the harsh realities of um, apartheid, um, in, in contrast of, you know, the home that you grew up in with all these uh, lessons, um, how, how do you feel that at, that um, actually, in, in, in a sense, moved you in the direction of where you ended up today? Well, in our home, information, knowledge was always important. The seeking of knowledge was important. We didn't come from a wealthy family. And I always remember both my parents saying that the only thing we can give you is knowledge. If we give you knowledge, if you get a good education, you're probably one of the most wealthiest people in the world. Hmm. And so they they stressed knowledge. They stressed the seeking of knowledge. And it was all sorts of knowledge. It wasn't limited to a particular kind. And so they exposed us to very many different things, as I explained to you. And it was about so, uh, the sociology of the world, about economics, about politics, about culture, about different continents, etc. And I guess in that way, we, we became thirsty, always to seek, to learn, to know. But it wasn't only just about absorbing, but it was about translating what you absorbed into something functional and substantive, about acting upon the knowledge, Mm. about questioning the knowledge, about challenging the knowledge. You know, you you don't be um, a silent recipient or um, how they say, like a sponge. Yeah, or a sponge where you just absorb. No, there, there must be some kind of activity that's generated from that. And I suppose in all of that, in our young days, we had in the 1980s where we boycotted um, education, if you remember, and I remember so well in my mind, it was that song, I can't remember who the uh, artist was, but it was that we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control. And we used to sing that as we would protest and and cause disruptions in the schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And that happened also in in the varsities, etc., where we were protesting um, uh, and boycotting. So, and it was again about the education system, and that's when Feasum's Fall happened, 2015, 2016. I mean, these memories were vivid, and it made me think back about the the importance to continue the fight, to seek justice, but most important of all, to seek justice in terms of education. Interesting. Speaking of education, um, I'm going to digress a bit and, and ask you, what what are your three best um, books that, you, that you've read that have had its significant impact in your life? <laughs> okay, so the first one would be Martin Luther King's, and that would be Muhammad. That's the biography of the Prophet Muhammad. Because mm-hmm. in there I found uh, very many lessons, especially about social justice and about political arrangement. You know, things that, that um, easily missed. 
And um, after that, well, I, I guess there's too many. I enjoy not so much specific books as I've enjoyed short stories. Okay. Uh, and, and I've also read in, in the last, I think, three to five years, there's been a shift in the kind of reading that I have done. So initially, I was very much consumed by the fiction. Uh, I loved fiction. Uh, I loved the stories in there. And, and, and to a certain aspect, I've used some of it in my thesis as well when I did my PhD hmm. because I wrote it using theatrical language, although the topic is very controversial. <laughs> so um, uh, there's another one. It's a Sophie book. When you hear hoofbeats, think of a zebra. Interesting. And again, that, yes, that, that again is showing that how you need to change the way in which you think or change the way you perceive hmm. um, so that you allow for greater interpretation. Hmm. And, and I would say, well, for me, fundamentally, the most important book in my life is the Quran. Interesting. And and, yes. and why is that? Well, because of the lessons in there. There is, you know, it's it's again how you read. Um, you know, it's it's everything is about interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, in it, I find a huge amount of wisdom. But also guidelines on behavior, and fundamentally, the opening concept behind this particular book is the concept of justice. And I think and society needs to be structured on the grounds, on the line of justice, before anything else can be established. And it is the fundamental ethical principle that's missing in terms of the values in our in our lives today. Hmm. Speaking of justice, now transitioning into, I guess, more serious aspects of um, this conversation. Fundamentally, as a country, um, 20 years or 21 years or so into um, democracy, there's, 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 there's still a lot of people that live on the outskirts of um, the economy, metaphorically speaking. Um, and those people make up, um, in large parts, uh, the majority of the population that exists within um, South Africa, South Africa, and are living off the scrapes of, you know, the other um, top or whatever percent, but uh, minority um, that are living off the wealth of those people. Where did we go wrong as a country? You feel? Uh, that's a deep question. <laughs> that's a deep question, and I don't think we can say that we and take the blame entirely for ourselves. Uh, yes, certainly there is blame to be apportioned because if we don't, then we're ignoring the whole concept of agency. Interesting. And we're just trying to lump it on everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I stated to you earlier, the importance of context and the recognition of context. So as a country, we only haven't gone wrong, but we were placed in a situation that was wrong. And by that, I mean wrongful and unjust. And then in many ways, uh, the continuation or the perpetuation of that injustice, uh, you know, has played out. But it's been written about by all, perhaps all the great African scholars, Fanon being foremost in, in the description of what would happen when the colonized would come into positions of power and leadership. So it's simply a replacing of the color of the skin, but a continuation of the system. And that's yes, what I spoke yes. about the other night. Uh, and I said that we're still in neo-apartheid. Yes. This is neo-apartheid. We're not post-apartheid. Uh, and, and if you look at it in terms of colonization, then it's now coloniality. 
Yes. So the systems continue because they're so entrenched. And those who represent us, the elite, the bourgeoisie, and in the South African scenario would be the black elite, uh, are those who perpetuate or continue the white man's work and that that exploitative work. And the fundamental to that is self-enrichment. So you Mm. see the extent of state capture, the greed in the society. yes. Corruption, cross materialism, the aspiration to everything wealthy. And it's significant that only Mama Winnie Mandela stayed in the township in Soweto, but everybody else kind of moved out from the black areas as if to say, you know what, that's not good enough for us anymore. We want the white man's world. Hmm. And so you find them in all of these spaces, and only Mama Winnie stayed. Um, but these are discussions that are not had nor openly spoken about because it might be considered offensive or um, you know, unhealthy for, for those who control the agenda or maybe even control the media platforms. Yes. But these are the realities that black South Africans and, and not only black, but all South Africans who care about, who care about a harmonious, developing and a better society in South Africa where there's a future for all of us. These are the conversations that need to be had. And if we can have that conversation, then the first thing that should come to mind is, why is it that all of these elite have moved out of the black areas and into the white areas? Why have they not focused on making the black areas like the white areas? Yes. Yes. Like or better? Yes. Yes. Interesting. And and to to come to think of it, you you spoke a lot about about, um, context. So them moving away from... Uh, the people that they're representing and the struggles of the people that they're representing, um, the context changes because now having all that materialistic um, acquisitions um, in place, then their problems have significantly significantly changed um, from what they used to be. So they don't even care about the people that are still living in that um, abject uh, poverty. No, they don't. You, you see this. There is an absolute, absolute distancing uh, from the reality of who they were to what they've become. And, mm. and a distancing from, and initially you said people living in the periphery, so-called periphery. It's not. It is a periphery. These are, if you look at it, they are subjects of the state. They are not citizens. Sure. And, and, and because a citizen has comprehensive rights and access to those rights. But these are subjects still treated very much like, you know, like subjects of the empire and subjects of the colonial state, etc., mm-hmm. that you, you mattered only to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And many of these matter only to a certain extent, and that is as a, as a political voter base. So at the time of election, suddenly you count, you matter, we visit you, we give you parcels, etc. Other than that, your voice disappears into the, into the wilderness. And and so, no, definitely there are very many issues in terms of the way in which the elite now relate to the black and uh, to, to the black person, to the poor person, to the impoverished person. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because a white a while ago they used that as a canvas yes. to claim, you yes. know, to claim certain rights and privileges, certain conferments of titles upon themselves. Uh, and that brings us back to the whole question of what you started on, unethical leadership. You know, mm. you're claiming... Mm certain things in the name of great values such as justice, but then the minute you attain it, you abuse it. Interesting. And and, and now looking at where we are as, as South Africa, it, it looks that, you know, the the country is about to implode on itself because a lot of people, especially the ones that are 
still suppressed and in large parts oppressed by the system um, have had enough. And, you know, at any given moment, it looks that things could move from worse to utter chaos. Yes. I think what many South Africans forget, and, and even all of us, you know, when we get caught up in the comfort of the ivory towers of uh, where we are in terms of our professions, etc., we forget that South Africans are basically boxed into a system of violence, sure. of dehumanization and power. And this is still playing out to a huge extent. And yes, they are. The poor are getting frustrated. There are others who are agitating for their own political or individual agendas. And, and, and sadly, they will use the masses to, again, enrich themselves or to get into positions. And, and then they will forget where that, you know, that, that ability to get into that position came from. Hmm. So... Um, and, and this, again, is all related, quite frankly, Bongani, to the fact that we have forgotten about ethics, about ethical values. Yes. Uh, there, there is no schooling about the, the, the morality of justice, about the rights of the people, and, and that individuals in power, when they come in, they should recognize that they are there to serve. And when you serve, you maintain your sense of humility. So there should be an appreciation of the people whom you serve and the people should appreciate you. And maybe in a way, all of this has got to do with our electoral system. Interesting. Yeah, the political, uh, you know, we have a partyless system. Yes. So we don't vote for a particular leader. We vote for a particular party. So we're not choosing the best candidates, unfortunately. Within the party. Yes. Yes. Yes, and, and maybe in many ways also we're just voting, and many people vote emotionally in fear of apartheid, others vote on the opposite side, the fear of the Swat Khafar. So it continues along that line, but there are so many amazing people. I mean, let's just, let me give you one example. We, yes. we lose we lose sight of the fact that there are many good people in this country. And, and you can just think about that if you think about um, all the corruption scandals that have been exposed. Where, do this come, where does this come from? From whistleblowers, people who are willing to speak up and say, you know what, there's something wrong here. Sure. So whether whether they're directly or indirectly or whatever, but it gets exposed. And it's coming from people who recognize that there's something wrong. So just in there, although in, in that, you know, in that horrid wickedness of state capture, corruption, etc., there's still a lot of good people who are fighting from inside to make things known. Mm, 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 mm. That's so true. Let's 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 define away um, this 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 um, subject. What what is ethical leadership? Well, ethical leadership is again to reinculcate the values uh, that that should be in a leader. First of all, foremost is that a leader should recognize that it's not about himself or herself and that the position is not because they're entitled to, but because they're the best candidate in terms of their ability to be just, Hmm. because of their knowledge, uh, because of their capability and capacity, and also because of their exemplary character. So ethical leadership goes hand in hand with exemplary character. That means honesty, good virtues, practicing generosity, empathy, kindness, wisdom, you know, all of these things come together in terms of what ethical leadership should be. And it's not necessarily a 
and be stumbled of the elderly. Mm-hmm. You know, young people today have far more of these qualities than older people do. Sometimes I get so frustrated when I look at the leadership in Africa, mm-hmm. I feel like they need to be put in front of a firing squad, you know, and just bring in a whole new generation of young people <laughs> who, who have good vision yes. and understand that, you know what, our people are suffering our Gokos raised us and they did all of this work for us. And today, where are they? After voting, suffering, they're still where they are. There's yes. no improvement. And, and many young people are seeing that. And that comes exactly back to what you're saying, where yes. we are ready to explode or the country is going to implode. Either way, it's because there's a tangible, tangible reality amongst young people about the fact that very little has changed. In an average, so, it, yes. In, sorry, so, mm-hmm. I'm just worried. It mustn't be misdirected. Yes. And in, in, in a continent where it's bulging um, with uh, a lot of millennials, and then you look at the stats for, for unemployment and you, you, you look at that um, proportionally, um, you know, the adults versus the, 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 the young ones. At some point, teachers could say, go get a degree, you'll get a job and you'll live a certain kind of life. But now... You know, children get degrees, they get all the education that they have access to, especially as well living in a country where, you know, the price of education as well is too expensive and excludes a lot of people. Um, but only to realize and find out that still, you know, the guarantee of a job is, is, is not a thing because of a varying number of um, issues that need to be addressed within the corporate and, 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 and private sector. Yes, most certainly. You touch on a very, very important issue. And I think this was also part of what came out as one of the themes in FISMAS 4, because they, it reflected multiple dimensions in the crisis in higher education. And all of these included the epistemic, the economic, the political, the psychological, and the social. Hmm. And from it, students understood of the, the importance of knowledge and knowledge uh, and, 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 you know, getting a, a qualification to come out to, 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 to shape them out. And literally it is to shape them out of poverty because, again, what's missed in the conversation is that in South Africa we don't only have poverty, we have impoverishment. Hmm. People have been intentionally made poor. Yes. And, and intentionally made poor has come from our history, from the context of apartheid, colonialism, slavery, also the continuation of racial capitalism. Sure. We have a racialized capitalism in South Africa, which practices a particular kind of exploitation, and that is of the black body. Hmm. So, so education is supposed to deliver us from these kinds of structures. But when education itself is designed to maintain these systems, how then do we expect that you will come out of it? And so that's where I spoke about again the other night about the manipulation, how education is manipulated, you know, to continue this exploitation rather than to offer well-being. Hmm. There has been no envisioning of something new, the creation of something different, of tapping into the very many talents and skills that South Africans have or which can be harnessed. The focus is simply being one option, one choice, continue in the way it has always been done. Hmm. How is that transformation, Bongani? Hmm. How hmm. is that hmm. going to bring the people of this country out of what they are in? In fact, we're steeping. We're mm. getting deeper and deeper into the dirt. It's like quicksand that's drawing us in. And that's why you're absolutely right. There is going to be some implosion or some explosion. Hmm. 
you know, this country has has serious problems. And now, with in, in in terms of you know all the money borrowing from all these different countries, yeah, it looks good to be getting all these billions to to cover certain shortfalls again because of you know the kind of leadership that we have that is squandering and. Um, looting the money and you know just embroiled in a lot of corruption. What, what's what's your take on all this 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 borrowing? Because I I have I have a kind of trail of thoughts, but I'd love to to hear your um, sort of opinion on, on on this. Okay, so so let me link it again to what I found in Christmas Fall. And without a doubt, I, I don't know if you heard one of the calling cries of Christmas Fall was high discipline, high morale. Sure. And in all of that, they kept on ask, challenging very specific aspects uh, of that kind of system that was enslaving uh, still the black students and the largely uh, black population inside of South Africa. And one of the, these issues was about liberalism and neoliberalism. Okay. It wasn't. And it was an intellectual mobilization confronting neoliberalism. And the students also realized that the system of education in which they were in was going to, and it was a commodified and a marketized knowledge, was going to entrap them further. Yes. So you enter from word go, you enter into a system of debt. And exactly what you're speaking about. So the borrowing is from micro context right through to macro context. As we saw in the structural adjustment programs of the earlier times during, you know, just uh, when African states started to gain independence. Yes. And in all of this, it's a continuation. It's a continuation of the history of entrapment. Hmm. And you entrap, you know, the societies and the people into a system of debt. But it's so well marketed. It's like how the media operates. <laughs> you're, you're actually, um, you're bedazzled into believing that you're having a better life that, by being... Tra- that, that into- here comes the solutions we've been waiting for as a country. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, as a people, you can have that, you know, bratling watch or that that uh, uh, amazing Ferrari or that beautiful home. You can have that expensive holiday and you'll pay it off, you know, over 12 months, 24 months, whatever it is. So there is no ethical... Um, evaluation of your worth firstly. So you continue to subscribe to the system of exploitation that capitalist, uh, capitalism has engendered because, I mean, th- th- that's what capitalism is all about. It's about maximum profit and maximizing profit. Sure. It doesn't care about who gets screwed in the process. Hmm. And it's all the people who end up, you know, taking debt or uh, being captured in debt. So, so in, in many ways, that's why I'm wondering, you know, tell me, Bongani, am I, am I you know, a fool? But is it is it the reality that it seems that people just don't learn from the history and we're not learning from our history and it looks like our leaders who are leading us have not read any of our black consciousness leaders. They have not read what they predicted, what they proposed, what they advocated, what yes. they warned us about. It seems like it's a continuation of something that we've been warned about, but nobody's taken heed. In, in, interesting that you'd say that because... I, you know, a, a large part of, I guess, um, coloniality is was removing us from that history where you, you ask a child right now who any of the leaders from any of the foreign countries, they'll be able to tell you off the bat. But if you ask them about one African leader, you know, 
they 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 wouldn't be able to 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 call all the names that 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 you know exist in our history records. But now speaking as well about that, um, you you touched a lot on how education still needs as well to be um, decolonized. Um, kindly build on that. So if you look at the structure of the universities, um, the university in South Africa, which is what the uh, you know, decolonial scholars called the westernized South African university, it has always had word glands. In other words, it, it was established to promote um, those who came there as individuals or you know well educated servants of the colon uh, of the of the colonizer and so you would return to to where you came from after having been educated in the colony and continue to do the work uh, of the homeland and and so these traditions the system the structures etc have continued because there has been very little change very little political will i think on the part of the south african government mm-hmm. to question to question the systems that have been set up. And of course, sadly, um, in many ways, there was a huge, huge mess up in the education from 1994, as in Department of Basic Education, the shutdown of the teachers' training colleges, the closing mm-hmm. of the nursing colleges, etc. Mm-hmm. These are valuable skills that we have lost. It could have been improved. You know, you don't have to necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. Yes, And that's what decolonization teaches you. We're not saying scrap all Western knowledge, you know, cancel all the European thinkers. No, what they're saying is look at it. If it's good, keep it and build on it. If there's something problematic about it, interrogate the problem Hmm. and then offer a solution from your side, from your perspective, from your uh, culture, your society, from your consultation. You know, so it, it mustn't be that the solution comes again from the Europeans. It must come from you in terms of your context. And so mm. knowledge must be relevant. It must be context relevant. It must be appropriate for the society in which you are um, ex- uh, extending that kind of knowledge. And mm. South Af- exactly as you say, South Africans know very little about their own knowledge about their own history, about their own peoples, the kinds of societies we had, the civilizations that we had inside of Africa and in in this part, which is a geographical location called South Africa. (laughs) So, so yeah, we're missing out. We're missing out on the richness and the heritage simply because the system has continued and that system perpetuates the idea that it's only good. Mm. If it comes from Europe, and that's why our universities today are striving and pushing for rankings and and qualifications and for credits, uh, you know, and for publications in European journals, etc. So it's only good if it comes from. But of what benefit is it? Is it? Yes. That knowledge is not changing our society. Mm-hmm. It's not making us a better country. It's not making us a better people. Mm-hmm. You know. So. so in my understanding of knowledge, the knowledge is the lost property of the believer. It means it has to do something functional. And that something functional means it has to build a just society and bring about the better life. Hmm. And you, you think about a lot of the solutions that are proposed in how a, a lot of uh, degrees function. Um, those solutions are based on problems that are not even our own. 
So uh, a solutions to no problem, a solution that won't solve any problem within the African context, because they were formulated by people who do not understand our context, our lives, our way of living, you know, and, and the depth of the kind of problems that we have um, as a country and as a continent as well, which, which defeats the purpose. You go to school, you say you are educated, but you can't use your education to better society and, 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 and to solve the problems that are within your country. No, exactly, because ultimately you have to know the context. I remember a while ago I was speaking to a very interesting gentleman. He's from India and they call him the Rain Man. So basically what he, yeah, he came as one of the, as a guest of one of the institutions at the University of Pretoria. Okay. Because he's basically doing a, a phenomenal project and it's called Harvesting Rain. And he's harvesting rain in parts of India where there hasn't been rain for decades. Hmm. And as a result, because there hasn't been rain, the land has dried up. And so you've had a massive rural urban migration. Mm-hmm. People have moved into the urban areas because, of course, if there's no water, you know, there's very little life. And so what he did was, I think he started in the province of Gujarat. And he went to certain areas where the, there used to be huge rivers. You know, the water used to flow perennially. And he started a project which is simple. It's the most simplest kind of a project. And it's no sophisticated tools, building of dams, etc. And then he engages in this project to harvest rain. And I think in a matter of a couple of years, the rain actually returned to these places and the rivers are perennial again. And there's a reverse migration from urban to rural areas. Hmm. But... It was about the knowledge of the context and the knowledge of the knowledge of the people in those rural areas that helped him to develop this. And so you got the community involved and everybody bought into the project. Hmm. And he said to me, he said, South Africa is is, is a drought-ridden country. We have a scarcity of water. He says, but it doesn't mean that you should run out of water Hmm. because your indigenous people know how to harvest water. However, the corporates, racial capitalism, commodification and marketization, liberalism does not want to know about this knowledge because Hmm. why? There's no profit. Yeah. Yeah, there's no profit. You build an expensive dam. Construction workers, construction companies, cement companies, um, you know, equipment companies, um, JSC stock, uh, uh, registered stock companies, etc. are making money from it. But if you use simple techniques, which our people know, who's going to make money from it? But you do have well-being then and you have a better life. Yes. And as you know, in South Africa, the big discussion today is land. Yes. The question of land. So... There's just too many motives about not resurfacing the indigenous knowledge. And it's dark motives. It's motives that I say continue to, you know, to prevail because you want to continue the impoverishment of the people in this country so that you can continue to steal and exploit their resources. And interesting that you'd mentioned the issue of the land because, you, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the practicality of, of you know, Going ahead with that um, and attributing a lot of that to looking at the, the, the constitution, which I feel in, in large part as well does not serve, you know, the people it was intended for because, you know, racial um, corporate South Africa still uses it to its advantage um, to benefit them uh, rather than the people it was intended to benefit. But in any case, 
it was made illegal for a black person to own land. So there was a law literally created to disenfranchise, um, you know, black people in their own country. So ethically, what, what do you propose as some of the things that we should be looking at as a country to reverse that and to go ahead um, empowering our people where land is concerned? Um, I don't know if you had the opportunity to engage with the Ruth first lecture when she spoke about the land debate. Uh, if you have Ruth Hall, sorry, Ruth Hall. Um, she's a professor in, in, I think it's UCT, yeah, or one of the universities in the Cape. And she contributed a very powerful lecture about the land debate. And the first and foremost is that it is about redress okay. and, addressing, and addressing historical injustice. So where you have a historical injustice, you need to recognize that it exists and then you have to make or you have to make headway or, or, or take steps in order to redress that injustice. Mm-hmm. And so the issue of land is certainly a very, very important issue. And it must be addressed in terms of getting South Africans out of the state of impoverishment. Now, what is it about land expropriation that many people don't understand? In other, it's not really land expropriation, but it's about land restoration. Hmm. You know, I think so. Again, how words are used is very, it's very, very key. Important. Yeah, it's key because you're not expropriating it from somebody who it belonged to. You're yes. actually restoring it to the rightful owners. And so that's the first thing that South Africans need to understand that it's about land restoration and it's about land restoration based on a fundamental concept and that was racial inequality mm-hmm. it was in this this injustice has been inherited and continues to be perpetuated across generations and not only that there is what i what many people call an intergenerational inheritance of poverty mm-hmm. so as a result of this uh, displacement you have poverty is perpetuated from one uh, family to the other, but also inside of one family over generations. At the same time, there is an intergenerational inheritance of privilege for those who got the land, who accumulated wealth, uh, who invested in education, the same education system that's still that's still maintaining a kind of gatekeeping to ensure that only a certain amount of black students graduate, that a certain amount of black students are considered qualified or, you know, worthy. Worthy is the key term here because yes. it relates directly to your dehumanization sure. um, of, of entering into positions and into jobs. And so this intergenerational inheritance of privilege also allowed for individuals to amass wealth. Um, initially, it was close to the land, and now many of them, are far away from the land itself, but are reluctant to return the land. Hmm. And so let's consider South Africa. South Africa is a changing society. 62% of our country is urbanized. Yes. And multinational companies, pension funds, are those who are the majority owners of farmland. Hmm. So it's corporates. 
again, racialized capitalism, exploitation, going back to the whole concept of this idea of liberalism, the fact, I mean, I like Ciswe's book, Democracy and Delusion, you know, Ciswe and Pofa Walsh, I'm you read his book, and the topic is apt, democracy or delusion, what are we living in? So you think you're in a democracy, but really it's actually a, a delusion. And so the central issue here in South Africa is that we're moving backwards in terms of black people's access to land. Yes. Um, if you look at the amount of black people who were dispossessed just in the first decade since 1994, more than 940,000 people were forcibly removed from their farms. And then what about tenure? You know, land tenure, where there are so many African schools, black schools on farms. Um, that's because there was nowhere else to put up the school. Hmm. But now you have to pay for the use of that property and yes. individuals, corporates, farmers, whoever it is, are denying access to these students. So education also becomes compromised through land tenure and dispossession. There are too many issues it, and the list goes on. But what is the, what is the fundamental thing that, you know, the mandate for transformation is clear. Yes. What should South Africans be asking? Not that we want to change the constitution. But that the mandate for transformation is clear. Why is our government, our black government, refusing to adopt that mandate and to act on it? Hmm. There's no political will. These, see, we're not asking the right questions because we're not schooled to think critically. Sure. So there must be restitution for those dispossessed unfairly. That's in section 25.7. It's there. Section 25.8 says nothing can stop the state from taking measures to achieve Real transformation. Section 25.8. Nothing can stop the state. What has stopped the state? Mm. We should be asking the state, what has stopped you from taking these measures? So who does the state answer to? Is this a democracy mm. or is this an autocracy? We're answering to the elite, to the wealthy. Mm. Who are we answering to? Which seem to be pulling the strings from behind the curtain, right? Yes, of course. And then, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's neo-apartheid. It's a continuation of the same system. There's nothing, nothing, well, certain things have changed. I mean, I wouldn't have got my PhD at the, at the University of Pretoria. That's a point. Sure. sure. <laughs> but, but very little substantively has changed in terms of the masses of South Africans. Very, very powerful point. Speaking of um, getting your doctorate, you do, you're doing postdoc now and, and, and a lot of research. What are some of the things that you, you're working on now? So the public intellectual project is again to raise this whole question of ethics. I'm working around, I want to next work around a topic to ask, you know, the question, who rules us? Basically, it looks at, you know, the, those individuals, certain leaders, perhaps I'll focus on certain leaders, drawing directly from my thesis, uh, and then question their ability to lead us and where are they leading us. But in most instances, I mean, just blink your eye. And in that blink of an eye, you can see that the majority of the world leaders are leading us to war, not to peace. Mm -hmm. They're leading us to strife and conflict, not to harmony and healing. Mm -hmm. So it brings a big question into mind as to who leads us and what kind of public intellectual are we honoring. And that's why I have problem with this concept of titles and doctor and, you know, all this fancy dress, etc. Sure. I mean, I'm... I, I checked up on you a little bit. I hope you don't mind. And I saw that 
you have an interest in fashion and design, etc. And so I want to put a challenge out to you also in terms of forcing new perspectives. You know, when we are forced to wear these gowns at our graduation ceremonies, and these are cultures that are embedded in the institution that represent a culture that's not ours. Yes. You know, the culture of gowns, where the gowns such as the red PhD gown, and it's available only from one supplier in all, near any university per se, reinforces this imposition of a Western superiority. So it, in spite of us getting that educational achievement, we're still in, in a subtle way reminded that it's only good if it's European or Western, that it won't have the same value if it's African. And so it, it trenches in many ways the privilege of those who have benefited from exploitative systems. Mm-hmm. So, so why aren't African designers, African skilled craftspeople, you know, sitting back and examining what the culture was like. How was it that we conferred honor on people in our societies, in our tribes, in our villages? Because an educational achievement in a way is a kind of an honor. Yes. And and what kind what kind of um, tools did they use? Was it dress? Was it um, you know, something that they gave you and you held up like an ornament or an instrument. Or what is it? Why are we ashamed to go back to that which is intrinsically ours? And so in many ways, if you look at this continuation of these systems, I would like young black people like yourself also to start forging uh, new pathways and say, you know, when I'm designing something for graduation ceremonies for the African University. Sure. Sure. And this is what it should look like. It's, but sorry, carry on. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting that you actually um, brought brought that up because um, I guess in in large parts, what I'm trying to achieve with uh, the platform is to basically fashion Africa's history and and create a sort of an archive for African fashion designers and African fashion at large, and. How I'm, I'm achieving that is through perceptive sartorialism. So having conversations about the psychology, the politics of fashion, amongst other things. Speaking of which, you, you spoke or, or touched on how fashion also can be used in othering um, yes. people. Uh, kindly, kindly touch on that. Yes, uh, thank you for reminding me about that. But that's exactly it. It's, it can be used as a way of de- demeaning or dehumanizing the other. So, example, amongst Muslims and Muslim women per se, the way in which the Muslim body is policed and constantly Muslim women are told that you cannot wear your headscarf or you cannot wear your veil or you cannot wear, you know, the covering that you choose, it's because you do not conform to a society, and that society is the West, modern Western liberal society, which considers itself secular, but that alone is a joke, because secularism, in a way, is a kind of a religion. And almost in every state, even if you look at France, which is one of the worst uh, committers of this atrocity, um, they have religious you know, connotations in all of their governmental procedures, and the U.S. as well. Sure. So... So the question is, again, that Muslim women are then othered and made to be inferior. You'd like you look at the poor Muslim woman who has no voice. You know, she's oppressed. She um, is uh, a subservient, subjugated, etc. And yet they ignore the other flip side of the coin that, that maybe it's her choice. What if it is her choice and her way of asserting her own identity independent hmm. of a Western identity? Hmm. The 
the flip side of the coin also is nobody brings this into discussion is um, secular Turkey under Ataturk, sure. which outlawed the right of Muslim women to wear the headscarves. Yes. Many Muslim women actually suffered a huge prejudice as a result of this because they refused to abandon their beliefs and their morality, their ethical values and their principles, um, and refused to take off the headscarf. So they simply just didn't go and get a higher education. They didn't get employment. So what about all these forms of discrimination that women have endured as a result of the choice of the dress that they have made? And then if you go to African history, mm-hmm. you see the same, how African women have been belittled for what they have worn or not worn as a result of their own cultures. So yes, dress is certainly used as a way and a means of demeaning or also of othering um, individual bodies, but most specifically the target is non-white patrons. So mm, it doesn't mm. really happen to white people. It happens to everybody who is not considered as white. How, how would you describe, um, you know, what, what, what the, the different elements that go into any particular look on any given day represent for you as a person? How do you mean? So, 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 so. For instance, um, if a Zulu woman is wearing is it color, for instance, that yes. um, uh, <clears throat> that in large parts um, represents that she's she's a married woman, and mm-hmm. other and other elements that 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 come into imvunulo, which is um, how um, you describe a, a person that's dressed fully in their attire, they they mean something. So. I'm asking for 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 you um, in particular. You know, what does the dress signify to you, and what does it mean to you? How well, you dress? You, yeah, you just nailed it. <laughs> well, basically, for us, dress is not about our sexuality or about us as commodities. Yes. So we're not out there to market ourselves, but there's a symbolic value into what I wear. And also that's why you find that African fashion is so colorful because yes. it represents life, it represents happiness, it represents joy, and most important about celebration. So in, in many ways you celebrate many things and blessings that you have. And it's a recognition of these gifts that God has bestowed upon you. So dress is not exactly as I say for us. And for me, especially a means of a commodification or about me uh, trying to sell myself to, to be affirmed. And which comes right back to the start where I said we need to realize that we don't need to be affirmed anymore. Mm-hmm. It's about me, who I am and, and how, what I'm comfortable in. But in many ways, it also tells a story about my life. So there's depth, there's personality, there is, uh, um, you know, there's a narrative about what your dress should say about you. And, and most importantly, uh, most important of all, sorry, it is about your worth as an individual to make your own choice. Thank you so much. To young listeners um, that are listening out there who have aspirations to move in really any industry, um, what kind of messaging would you, would you like to send to them? Um, I would like to tell them to be as authentic as possible. Um, don't aspire always to be applauded or, you know, to be affirmed. And always when you do something, love it. Be passionate about it. But most important of all, 
ask yourself, in what way does this which I am doing make a difference? Does it contribute to something better? Because that is the purpose and the journey of life, Mm -hmm. is to try and always do better, to make better, to bring joy, to bring love, to to spread the blessings, to share, to be kind, to be human. I mean, it's about a better society. It's about the well-being of all. That's what Ubuntu teaches us also, and what we learn in the concept in in the Shura and Ummah. So when when you aspire to a profession, please shake off the shackles of modernity, coloniality, and, and a Western ideology which teaches you that you aspire to be wealthy and, and buy all of these things and get trapped in debt and, and think that you're living a better life. That's not a better life. You know, Lorenzo Fioramonte wrote a very good book, and it's called The Wellbeing Economy. And he says, you know, before we used to take a walk in the park, today we spend time in the mall. Wow. Before we used to go on hiking trips, etc., mm-hmm. today Today we spend time in the gym. Hmm. So, so look at how life has changed, and then the way in which we change, we've changed our perceptions. Just go outside, look at the nature, appreciate the value that is just simply right outside your front door, and look at animals, as you mentioned right at the start. You know, I'm I'm very very much in touch with the need to be kind to animals, and that. You know, in many ways, humans have lost that too, and South Africa is suffering a huge problem. If you look at uh, the rhino killings, etc., there mm. should be a certain amount of accountability for all of this. Mm-hmm. And it's good to see that in Botswana, in Namibia, and in Kenya, there is now, you know, projects where they're working with the indigenous people to re-inculcate. And, and that is what Africa has always has been about. It has been about living in harmony with all of the creation. Yes. But we've lost that because we think of profit, but we don't realize that when you chop down a tree, there's more cost than there's profit. When you kill an animal, there's more cost than there's profit. So we, we're not thinking correctly. And Bongani, that comes back to the whole concept of decolonizing our education, sure. reinstilling the ethical values, learning about our culture. Stop being embarrassed of being African. Stop being embarrassed to be black. Stop being embarrassed about being Muslim. We have phenomenal traditions, incredible cultures, Hmm. and we have great knowledge which we can tap into. Thank you so much, um, Kurasha. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I feel that um, there's lots of insights that our listeners will uh, be able to get um, from from this conversation so to people who the fans that you you, you've just made um, for lack of a better term um, how do they follow um, the conversation how do they get in touch um, with you or you know read um, any of your transcripts going forward thank you for that i humbled by your by your wonderful comments but uh, i am on twitter i'm very vocal I am very provocative, so you can follow me on at QE Smile, I S M A I L, 
or um, you can find me on academia. I post my articles regularly on academia, and that would be under Croatia Ismail Suleiman, and Suleiman is S-O-O-L-I-M-A-N, same like Dr. Imtiaz Ismail Suleiman. I've given to the givers who's my brother. <laughs> so I'm throwing that in. <laughs> That's a loss. No, because I'm proud of him. I am. He's proudly African. He's proudly South African, yes. and he's done. He's done a lot of work for South Africa as well, and for humanity. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us on the Youth Leadership Platform, and all the best in all your future endeavors. Thank you very much, Bongani, and thank you for sharing the space. Although we got off on a rocky start. <laughs> No problem. That's you, yeah, yeah I, I mean, we we should have more of 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 this in in a in a, in a following episode. How's that? You you're spot on. Right. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, awesome. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for tuning in to the Youth Leadership Platform uh, from the team. It is good day and God bless. This is CliffCentral.com.